Hey, it's Rebecca. And before we get into this week's episode, I want to remind everyone to check out my new six-part investigative podcast, The Dropout. It is the fascinating story of Elizabeth Holmes. She was once the world's youngest female self-made billionaire, and now she's facing up to decades in prison for criminal charges to which she pleaded not guilty. So many of you have been writing to me about this, um, reaching out to me on Twitter and leaving us great reviews wherever you're listening to those podcasts. And we really, really appreciate it. This is one of the most interesting stories I've covered throughout the course of my career. It has also been a a long, long path to get here. We've been doing this, working on this for over three years. So I'm really excited to share it with you. Check it out now. Subscribe, rate, and review. The Dropout is available wherever you're listening to podcasts and new episodes come out every Wednesday. Here's this week's episode of No Limits. My mom worked uh, two jobs. She was a secretary during the day and then a waitress at night. The CFO of of GE Lighting actually uh, lived near us, and he'd come into her restaurant where she waitressed every Tuesday night. And he handed her his business card and told me to give him a call, and I did. He flew me out for an interview. Wow. And asked me one question. He asked me if I have half the work ethic of my mother, and I said yes. And he said, well, then you're hired. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there, and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's episode, are you having fun and are you still learning? These are the two questions that this week's guest has used to guide her career. Jessica Holscott is the executive vice president and first female CFO of HBO. She's worked at major companies like GE, where she started her career, NBC Universal, and Time Warner. But her work ethic started long before her first job. Jessica grew up in Cleveland, where she watched her single mom work two jobs to support their family. She says that the values and work ethic that her mom instilled from a young age have been integral to her success. On this episode, Jessica talks about working her way up and the steps she took from the beginning to get to that CFO role. She also shares some valuable lessons about knowing when to speak up and when to listen. Plus, she has some really interesting thoughts on how HBO sees the competition, like Netflix. Here's Jessica Holscott. Jessica Holscott, welcome to No Limits. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for having us to your offices at HBO, where um, you're looking over Avenue of the Americas in New York. Absolutely. It's got to be one of the best locations in the city. So I want to get into your work as the new CFO of HBO, first female CFO of the company, which is a huge deal. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, But I also want to get into just your background and this path, because you are the first CFO that we've had on No Limits. And I think it's an interesting path that you took because you started out in college studying finance. So was this all always the dream? That's a great question. I uh, I actually was a pre-med major to start in college. Really? So I've always loved math and science and decided I was also uh, playing softball on a scholarship. And so at the time, I was traveling all the time with softball games, and it was very hard to come back and, and do labs late at night all alone. And I decided I liked the idea of medicine. And it's a little creepy to dissect very a creepy frog at 11.30 in the lab alone. <laughs> exactly. And so I, I love the idea of studying uh, 
medicine, but not the actual practical part of touching and dissecting. And so quickly decided that my love of math would translate into finance. And so majored in finance and graduated and uh, started my career at, at General Electric in the financial management program. And you went to the University of Dayton in Ohio. That's right. Grew up nearby. Grew up in Cleveland. Yeah. And you grew up with a single mom. I did. Well, I did grow up uh, with a single mom through high school, middle school and high school. My mom actually worked uh, two jobs. She was a secretary during the day and then a waitress at night. And uh, so she was a terrific role model for me. And uh, the story that is, is interesting is that got me my start at General Electric is that a, the CFO of, of GE Lighting actually uh, lived near us. And he would come into her restaurant where she waitressed every Tuesday night. And he handed her his business card and told me to give him a call. And I did. He flew me out for an interview. Wow. And asked me one question. He asked me if I have half the work ethic of my mother. And I said, yes. And he said, well, then you're hired. And so she gave me my start in the business world. And uh, it was, I owe a lot. I owe so much to, to her. That is so cool, yeah. by the way. So work ethic was really important very in important. your house growing very up. Very important in our house growing up. Absolutely. And how about education? How did your mom approach that with you? Right. So my mom, school was very important, um, but I was also very into athletics. I think at an early age, she talked to us, both my sister and I, about the importance of of getting a college education. And so I knew that I needed to work very hard to to be able to get there. Um, so I was able to get an athletic scholarship in softball, um, which helped. And, uh, you know, I went to the University of Dayton because it was close enough to Cleveland where she could come see my games, but not too far away. And so uh, there was still some of that. Y- you had a responsibility to the family in some way. Absolutely. Absolutely. I wanted my mom to, to I want to be able to go home and see my mom and, and for her to come and see me. And so it was sort of the perfect distance. So you're studying finance. Were you immediately, you talk about the GE job and the fact that this person came into your mom's uh, workplace and said, does she have half the work ethic of you? Were you thinking in college, this path, now that I'm on this finance path, CFO is the ultimate dream? No. I So I started in the, the GE program, which they rotate you through various areas within finance. So I started doing that program, and I realized that finance is something I really enjoy doing. Um, and What do you like about it? I like that – well, I, I certainly like the fact that it it's an enabler to, bis, to make big business decisions within the company, uh, and it gets you a seat at the table, but it also – if done correctly, um, you know, you're, you're the partner to the CEO and you're helping mm. to, to really make big strategic decisions. And I enjoy that. I enjoy um, partnering with Richard and we can talk more about, about Richard and HBO, but I, I really enjoy being a partner to him. I totally appreciate that. And I also, I grew up, I loved mathematics growing up. It's part of why I ended up studying economics in college. And it was always one of my favorite classes along the way. And I liked the exactness of it. Right. There is an answer. Exactly. There is a solution. Exactly. You just have to get there. hmm 100%. When you started out at GE, first job out of college, what was your interpretation and impression of work? Were you in over your head? Was it a great experience? Was it what you expected? Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, at the GE, they rotate you through each of their businesses, so different industries. And so even though I was in finance, I was rotating through healthcare, 
I was rotating through the banking business. I was rotating. I rotated through NBC Universal, which is where I fell in love with media. I rotated through plastics, lighting, and all these different countries. Ooh, plastics, lighting. (laughs) Exactly. Very exciting. But what it taught me was that you can learn any industry. Uh, So you can rotate every two years to a new industry. And you can learn it uh, by listening, by reading, by talking to everybody within that within that business. Mm-hmm. And so I'd lean on my finance as my strength, but then I would learn the, the entire industry and add value. And so what it taught me is that I can pretty much go anywhere and figure anything out. And that's a I think that's an invaluable lesson. And I think you've tapped into something there, finance as your strength, because that's something no one can take away from you. Uh, going back to this idea of it being exact. Right. There are lots of subjective strengths that exist, but one of the things, and, and it's why I encourage women who are inclined towards science or mathematics to to pursue it, is that it gives you, uh, I think, a an immediate sense of gravitas, an immediate sense of credibility That's right. in any room that not to demean any other experience, but but generally speaking, just if you were to go out on the street outside of HBO right now and ask people, what's the hardest subject? Math. Right. A lot of people would say math. And if you can own that and really develop that skill set and not shy away from it, I think it's a really huge benefit to your career. Absolutely. I feel like I can go into any room and take any role and know that my base knowledge, you know, I will succeed in my in my base my base knowledge in anything. And it's just about now, how do I learn every, you know, everything around me, but I can answer a question about the long range plan or where should we invest our money? And, you know, and, and I, and I feel good about that. I bring that to the table every single time. Okay. So you're at GE, you did this program for a while. You I stayed did. at the company for a while, good company to work for, especially at that point in time, I would imagine. Terrific, like leadership development. And uh, it was great to rotate through every, all the businesses and, and figured out what I really liked to do, which was I really loved media. So when you make the decision, that first job, deciding to leave a first job is always tricky. Right. Because you feel in some ways, and in best case scenario, you feel like you owe them something. You feel like they've helped you and developed your career. Correct. But at the same time, you're oftentimes looking for something bigger. Is that the case for you? Yeah, I think I, I, I so I, I decided early on that I wasn't going to really move my family uh, while my children were in their school years. And so what that meant was that I did a number of GE jobs within the area. Um, but then I started to feel like I was maxing out. Uh, and that it was time for me to to try something else. How and- did you know that? Because I think it's it's always tough to really know when you've maxed out inside of a job. Yeah, I think it's for me. It was people say two things. It's you know, are you still having fun and are you still learning? And there was a part of me that felt like it wasn't becoming as much fun anymore because you know, and, and I wasn't learning as much. And so those were sort of the two factors that I. Do I love coming to work every day and am I still learning? And I wasn't feeling that anymore. And that was the sign for me that it was time to to move on. And how did you go about looking for the next opportunity? Well, I had met Howard Averill, who was the CFO of Time Warner when I was at NBC. And uh, we always stayed in touch. And I think that that networking is is incredibly important. And uh, so I reached out to him and said, I'm really interested in getting back into media. We worked together at NBCU. I was CFO of one division. He was the CFO of another um, and he had me come in and interview for the head of investor relations role at Time Warner. And, uh, and so I think, uh, it was, I reached out to a number of people within my network and, uh, and he and I had always stayed in touch. And so he, he, uh, he brought me in and I'm incredibly grateful for that. 
On a practical level, people often talk about staying in touch. What's the right way to do it? Yeah. Emails when you see a, a news story about the person or checking in from time to time, holidays. Yeah, I think it's, I actually try two to three times a week to reach out to someone. And that can be via email, that can be for a coffee, um, that can be for a lunch. Um, you know, I, I actually, Richard Plepler is amazing at this. And I learned a lot from him about about how to do this. But for me, it's always been force yourself to do it a few times a week. Maybe that ends up being four, maybe that ends up being two, but you're out there meeting with people. And it. And for me, that has really helped continue to keep my network alive. Mm-hmm. And it's vice versa. I, um, as much as, you know, I want to help people get new roles too. And so I, I, I firmly believe that, you know, we talked about the CFO of GE Lighting who helped me. We talked about Howard Averill who helped me. I firmly believe that this pay it forward mentality in that. So I'm, I'm meeting with people who I think may be looking for jobs and how can I help you find the right next move? And so I think it's purposely, you know, scheduling three to four times a week with people. That's really smart. I do that too. I, I, but, it, and, and again, it doesn't, for me, I don't make it specifically about getting a new job. A lot of it no. is who's in my universe? Who am I interested in getting to know? And Correct. I think once you take that, some of the risk out of the ask, Correct. it's not, I'm not going to meet with you because you're going to give me something. Right. We're going to have an interesting conversation. I might be able to help you somewhere down the road. You might be able to help me somewhere down the road. We are two people who should know each other. Absolutely. You know, when I was in investor relations, I have a colleague, Deidre Latour, who worked at GE, head of communications there. She's no longer there, but we meet up for lunch just to even talk about how are we improving our, like, let's talk about communication style. What have we learned recently? It could just be a learning lunch. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, and, uh, and so I don't think it has to be, it's about a job or, 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 any, or always along those lines. It's about how, how do we improve each other and how do we get together and improve each other? So you're with Time Warner. You're running investor relations for them. Walk us through the steps to, and, and the HBO CFO role is relatively recent. End of 2018, October 2018, you're officially named the CFO. Right. Did you have your eye on that job for an extended span of time? Well, so I, I started investor relations um, and about six months in, AT&T announced the purchase of, of Time Warner. Which and, is always fun. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, um, but I was, again, incredibly blessed. Um, Jeff Bukas, who's the CEO at the time, asked me to also run merger planning. So I had investor relations, and then I led the, the integration. So you're with, a part of the, with the new thing. Right. And I asked me to lead the integration, represent kind of Time Warner, and help them merge with AT&T. And so I wore a dual hat for a couple years um, as doing investor relations and then also leading the merger. And so during that time, I got to know everybody so well. Uh, so I got to know everyone at Warner Brothers very well, at Turner and at HBO. And uh, so at the end of that, and the deal closed, uh, you know, talked to Jeff and Howard and said HBO is a place I'd love to be able to go to. Um, it's, I was incredibly impl- impressed with Richard and his passion uh, for, for the product and uh, that everybody here is ro- rowing in the same direction. And I actually have never seen that before in my career. I think... Everybody here is such a, they want to create the absolute best show. And they're all rowing in that same direction. And I, that has a lot to do with Richard. And uh, so having I'm, a mission statement and a North Star. Exactly. That's that's, Richard always talks top. about the North Star. And really? Yes. And I feel as though I, I have never seen a place like that. Why do you think that is? Well, I certainly think that 
he sets that tone at the top. And I think that we all sort of, he's so passionate about it. And then the next level down does it. And it sort of, it sort of just happens, Mm -hmm. uh, you know? And I think um, there's a lot of open dialogue here. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't, it's very interesting. I, I, we all certainly want, you know, maybe we all certainly want the best for each other. And yes, and I, I haven't seen that in many places. And so I, I, I observed that from Time Warner, and I knew that that's where I would love to be. So we've mentioned a couple of times in the conversation, Richard Plepler, the head of HBO. Mm-hmm. You work very closely with him in your role as C- CFO. Walk us through what that role, CFO, right. what does that mean? What do you do? So you have sort of what I consider the basics. And the basics to me in any CFO role are, you know, um, setting the long-range financial plan. Where do you want to be every year over the next three years? You have setting the short-term financial plan and meeting the short-term financial plan. So what decisions are we going to make to make sure that we're making the financial commitment that, we, that we've set forth? Um, and so, uh, and then there's obviously investment decisions that go along the way. And so what type of money? Acquisitions. Does, how are we spending? How are we spending? What do we want to invest in? How much do we want to invest in programming? how much we want to invest in technology to get to where we need to be. And so the CFO role is really, you know, setting all those financial projections and making sure you meet those financial projections, but then helping the decision-making along the way so that you're getting to the right place strategically. Uh, And so, you know, and obviously there's things that go along with that, which is controllership and accounting and all of that, but, but, but it's really those basic things that I talked about. What percent of your day is spent in front of Excel versus in front of people versus in front of research? Yeah, that's a good question. So I'm thrilled that I have an hour commute both ways on the train uh, <laughs> because it really forces me to read those two hours. Uh, so I'd say two hours a day is spent really reading the analyst reports and any articles that come out that would be useful in my in my daily role. Um, I'd say, you know, the rest of my time is actually not spent – believe it or not, behind a spreadsheet or behind a PowerPoint presentation. It's really out meeting with my team and talking to people as much as I can. Um, yes, there's some percentage of my time, but it's small, really, that's, that's spent doing those, you know, behind the computer, per se. Um, I learn so much more from my team and from those around me. And so that I try to spend the majority of my time doing that. And how important is it to be in the C-suite in a C-level job inside of a corporation, in your opinion, to really have an impact on the work and the vision? Well, I think that, I don't think you need to be in the C-suite to to initially have an impact on the vision. There's a, I think, you know, when I was thinking about my time at Time Warner, um, I wasn't necessarily in the C-suite. I certainly was in a senior role. And I felt like I'm very much so influenced how we were talking to the street, our strategy, um, because you know, a big part of that job, so just for listeners who sure. aren't necessarily familiar with it, a big part of investor relations is the communication with Wall Street, That's exactly all of the right. analysts who cover your stock, and then the investors who are buying or selling, because ultimately, some of your success rides on whether or not the company's stock is going up or down. Absolutely. That is what my success is definitely correlated to, and you summarized it perfectly. And so... Uh, you know, I, I certainly felt as though I wasn't in the C-suite per se, but I was definitely impacting how the co- where the company was heading. And so I, I see that myself here at HBO. I have a number of folks on my team who do a, just an amazing job influencing how, you know, where we're heading. And so I don't think you need to be in the C-suite. Uh, I, I think that it's, you know, having an idea and, and being open to discussing that idea and then having, 
you know, you know, taking the analytics to support it and and being confident in that idea. And Were so, you always comfortable speaking up? More of my conversation with Jessica after a quick word from our sponsor. When it comes to hiring, you don't have time to waste. You need help getting to your short list of qualified candidates fast. That's why you need Indeed.com. Get started today at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Are you always comfortable speaking up? Uh, yes, I actually, for the most part, I was. Uh, I think even though I feel that I am an introvert uh in, in nature, I, I certainly feel as though I've been pretty comfortable speaking up um, over time. And uh, I think maybe that's for the, because of the people around me made me comfortable. And uh, so I felt that, that I could. But I, I certainly have always felt comfortable uh, speaking my mind. A part of me thinks that also goes back to your mom. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, uh, she certainly uh, was a, a terrific role model in, in helping pull that out of me and, uh, and watching her do that herself. Um, yeah, I watched her also get her two years associate's degree while she was working the two jobs, and uh, she certainly uh, paved the way. She figured out how to get things done. <laughs> Absolutely. So HBO now has more competitors than it did when you started out in this industry. Mm-hmm. Netflix is spending more than $8 billion on content this year. Correct. How does HBO compete with that? Well, I think we've done just an amazing job. I think if you look at... Um, well, you can take the Emmys this year. You know, we ended up tying with Netflix um, and spending a quarter of, of what we spent on programming. So when we were talking earlier about, you know, my role is how much we'd be investing and how much we'd be investing in programming. And while we are increasing our investment in programming, um, we're increasing it significantly. Uh, I think it's about where do you, and this is really Casey and Richard's role, but where do they place the, the bets in that programming lineup? And uh, so our quality continues to be off the charts. And uh, so I'm incredibly proud of, of to be a part of a team that was able to, you know, spend significantly less, but come out, you know, with just such an amazing lineup these last few years. And so uh, is it that Richard just has his finger better on the pulse of what the consumer wants? I, I don't know. I don't know what the secret sauce is. I'm trying to figure out the <laughs> secret Have sauce. Have you been in any of those meetings? I'm really curious how the, the actual content generation conversation goes, because I think everybody who's listening right now has watched something. I'm not saying that it was on HBO, something, something somewhere right. where they ask themselves, how in the world did this get made? Right. Who thought this was a good idea? Right. Well, it certainly is a, is a funnel. We start with a, a many, many ideas. And, and I think between Casey's incredible team. And, and Richard has his pulse very, his hands very deep into, into programming. Um, you know, that they make, they make their way through the funnel. And, uh, and so I wish I, I'm trying to figure out what that secret sauce is myself. And, and, uh, when I, when I figure it out, I'll definitely, uh, let people know, but, uh, it's, it certainly is, is, um, something we're very proud of here. How much of it is the scientific side of, well, we know this audience person, you know, XYZ personality type from this background is going to watch this type of content versus the, no, this is just good. This is good. So we should make it. It's the latter. We actually aren't using a a tremendous amount of data today. Uh, Hmm. And so it's really about filling different, you know, different genres that are out there. So, you know, uh, but it's more about the gut feel than it is a data driven. That is a very interesting point. Because I think so much of the time nowadays, everybody is, you know, espousing the greatness of data and how useful data can be. 
Yeah, and, and I'm sure it can be. I, I, I have no doubt the data can be complementary um, to what you consider your, your gut feel about something. It certainly can complement and, and maybe aid you in the decision-making. Uh, but so much of, of what we've done over time, it, it comes down to you know, what you feel about something when you watch it. Yeah, I mean, I, even with this podcast, for example, there no one said to me, oh, the data doesn't suggest that this podcast will work. But so much of what I came at this from was this is something I and my gut really believe in, and I really just want to see it happen. Exactly. And I think that nowadays, and I get it, especially if you are a, a startup and even a large company, you have to use some of that data to your to, to plan your business. But it also seems to me that we miss out on things potentially because it has to be perfect. You always hear these examples of, you know, this this show had a character in it that no one thought would ever be the character that would capture everyone's attention. And now it did. And, you know, if the bean counters had said what to do, everyone would have said, don't do this. And then it's the best picture of the year. Right, right. No, absolutely. I think it's very complimentary. You know, you have to use it's we were talking earlier about kind of the right brain, left brain, but it's kind of the way I feel about it. It's you have to go with your gut. The data may help you make that decision. But ultimately, it's, you know, what is your heart telling you to do? What's been the toughest lesson for you along the way? Uh, It's funny. I I haven't really had I feel like everything has sort of shaped me to where I am today and which so I don't really feel as though I've had the, a really extremely tough lesson. I think that um, I've had – certainly I've had some naysayers along the way, um, you know, and I interviewed for the Time Warner IR role, investor relations role. Someone said, oh, you can't come back into media. You've been gone from it for too long, and it's been too many years since NBC, and the, and the landscape's changed. How are you going to learn that very quickly? And so I certainly have had uh, people that have – said, you know, you, you won't be able to do this role or it'll be very difficult to do this role. Um, How do you hear that? When someone says that, do you take it into consideration at all? Not, I take it as a challenge, right? And because uh, I, I know in my heart that I can do this. And so, um, you know, I listen to it and, and then I compartmentalize it and, uh, and, and move forward. And so I certainly think we are going back to those GE days of any industry, any role, you know, they drop you in, figure it out mentality has really helped me um, with perseverance and uh, with, uh, you know, a, willing to kind of talk and listen and do anything you can to, to be successful in a role. It sounds like to me that when you talk about tough lessons, I ask this question of everybody, but it sounds like to me you've been a head down, work hard, keep persevering, no matter what, style of personality. That's correct. Throughout your career. <laughs> yes. And even if there were setbacks along the way, you weren't even focusing on them because you were so far out front, nothing was going to shake you. That's right. Yeah. I, I just, I guess I feel as though there's always going to be roadblocks and there's always going to be, you know, various things that happen, but that, you know, you can, you can manage your way and get, your, get through most things. And so, um, yeah, absolutely. I've never, I've never felt like um, there's, there was something that I couldn't necessarily get through. Is there anything, any roadblock you can think of that you could take us inside of to, to walk us through how you managed it? Was it from reaching out to various parties involved? Was it sort of playing your cards right? Was it getting consensus around something? Yeah. You know, I think, look, I mean, I think the um, reflecting on the, the merger with AT&T, you know, and 
we were talking about, you know, HBO and Warner Brothers and Turner and, and AT&T, you know, uh, two very different companies, right? And uh, AT&T is, is purchasing War- Time Warner, which is now Warner Media. And, uh, and my role was to help try to integrate these two companies and these two cultures, which are very different. Right. right? <laughs> well, and I laughed initially because that's like a highly politically charged thing, even though you're not necessarily coming at it from that vantage point. Correct. And so my view was, you know, how do I do the best I can to help protect, uh, you know, the, the people and the cultures that exist today, but also help them understand what it's, you know, what at and is necessarily looking for. Um, and There's a new company. This has to eventually work down the exactly. road. If we decide to stay in our corners, it's not going to be that way. Exactly. And uh, given my GE background uh, and then NBC, who also purchased had purchased NBC at the time, it was something very similar that, that I'd been through before. And so I think it was leaning on those previous experiences. I think it's... Uh, there's there's certain things that you have to make sure that you speak and protect um, about the various cultures, media cultures. And I think it was speaking up when I needed to about the, those certain areas. Um, How do you decide that? When do you know you need to speak up? I think uh, when it's going to impact uh, the product uh, that you're putting out or when it's going to impact uh, you know various people's career paths uh, that you think are very critically important to to the company. Um, uh, I think you have to step in in certain areas and you have to know when that right point to step in is. And Did I, you ever step in at the wrong point earlier in your career and then learn from that? Uh, I certainly was, you asked earlier if I was, um, you know, it was over a time where I feel like I couldn't speak up. I probably have learned to listen more over time and to speak less over time in, the, in situations and wait for the right moment. And so earlier in my career, I certainly... Um, was more outspoken and probably um, spoke up too, too soon and too often. And, uh, and so I think uh, in, the, in this current role, when I was in, you know, leading the integration, it was picking the right moments. Mm-hmm. Belinda Johnson, the COO of Airbnb, yeah, I listened to that podcast. Was on, and I thought one of the interesting things she said was that she believes that sometimes it's a misnomer that you, as especially as a woman, that you should speak up in every meeting, say something in every meeting, make sure your presence is known, and I, it, it, that point. Not to suggest that you're saying not to speak up, but the point about getting into a situation and sort of learning the terrain and knowing what's going on before you shoot, um, I think I learned that early in my career as well, where you know you want you want your presence to be felt, obviously, and you want people to know that you're capable and that you're meant to be in that room. But sometimes, sometimes saying something immediately isn't going to earn you points with the people in that room. It's going to actually hinder your ability to say something of meaning or value in the future. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with, with, with that point. I think um, I've learned to pick and choose when, when, to, when to make my point versus feeling you need to make it in every, in every meeting that you sit in. I think it's more powerful, more impactful. And I think you end up making uh, the right point because you're spending your time listening to all the debate that's in the room. And so uh, I couldn't agree more with that. Has there ever come a time where you know you're making the right point, but you don't think that people are hearing you? And how have you built consensus around that? Yeah, I think, look, I think um, 
if you're trying to make a point, I've found, and people in the room aren't aren't uh, gaining consensus, I go to them then individually afterwards and uh, make a, you know, it takes a lot of time to go meet with six or seven individual people one-on-one for an hour. But I then go one-on-one and try to better understand um, what point they were trying to make and why they didn't initially agree with me. Uh, and so I find that uh, doing it one-on-one is sometimes better than in a group meeting to gain that consensus. What's the worst advice you've received along the way? Uh, I don't know if I've received uh, any awful advice. I Maybe you ignored it. <laughs> I, it's, it's, I, I'm sure I probably did. I'm sure I probably did. I, um, you know, I think for for a long time, and you were kind of talking a little bit about, um, you know, speaking up in meetings and, and, and when to do that. I've had an interesting sort of uh, debate with my, my friends going out for coffee and sort of this um, idea of the EQ, IQ quotient. And I think, you know, uh, I don't know if it's, if it's been, if it's been bad advice, but I certainly think that, um, you know, how do you balance kind of the EQ, IQ and, and what you look for in people on your team to kind of fill that out? Um, you know, I think earlier in my career, uh, I certainly felt like I watched uh, leaders have high, you know, have, have very high IQ and low EQ, right? Mm-hmm. And be very, you know, vocal and, and dynamic. And, and so I think, you know, in earlier in my career, people would say, you need to be more you know, out there. And, and, and I think over time, I've learned to that fine balance of EQ and IQ is so important, um, especially in senior management meetings. Right. And the those who don't bring the EQ to the table oftentimes fail, even if they have the best ideas. That's correct. Exactly. And I, my team, I'm always looking for that fine balance. But I think it's, it's an interesting debate about sort of the career advice you get over time uh, in regards to, to that EQ, IQ equation. Um, and, uh, and so I, I think, I don't know if I've received bad advice, but uh, I certainly have learned the importance of, of balancing those two. What's your least favorite part of the job? So uh, my least favorite part of the job is absolutely, um, and I'm sorry for all the accountants out there, <laughs> but uh, I don't enjoy the accounting aspect. Mm. And something we didn't talk about earlier is, you know, I think in any field you're in, marketing, um, technology, you have to do what I call the, the building blocks to be able to, you know, you still have to do all these roles to be able to become the chief marketing officer, or the chief technology officer. And so I did two years in accounting or controllership, even though I knew I wouldn't like it, but I knew I had to understand it to be a successful CFO down the road. And so that's still the part of the job that I don't enjoy. Um, But you had to do it. But you had to do it. Yeah. And so I tell when people come as a a mentee and wanting mentoring and we talk about what are the building blocks, where do you want to be? And then what building blocks do you need to have to get there? And uh, and so even though I didn't enjoy doing it, uh, you know, it's something I had, to, I had to know as a CFO, I have to understand, you know, debits and credits and I don't enjoy it, but, but it is a part of my role. I feel that way about investment banking. I don't think I had to do investment banking out of college in order to get a job in journalism, but I think it, it fast passed me into journalism in a way that if I had just come in, I always say, find a side door. If I had just come in through the front entrance, yeah. the way a lot of other people did, Way more competition there. Right. Instead, I did something a little different. It helped. Yeah, you have to figure out what are the areas that you need to be able to be successful. What are the building blocks? You you talk about the... the, what If someone listening to this conversation right now says, you know what? I really want to be the CFO. What do they need to do? Sure. So it's the first one we talked about, which is controllership and accounting. 
And then I view it, the second one is what I call financial planning and analysis. Remember, we were talking about setting the long range plan, the short range plan. The third one is uh, treasury. And the fourth one would be something in M&A or investor relations. So you see you're hitting sort of all the internal aspects of the role and then all the external aspects of the role. And so when you sort of hit those four building blocks, you know, I'd say, you know, spending a couple of years in each of those roles, you're building sort of your, your financial acumen um, and to be able to, to ultimately uh, become a CFO. And so, uh, you know, I think, you know, it, GE was really great at it explaining those building blocks to us. And, uh, and I was able to, to get roles in all those areas. And, and uh, so that's how I would describe it. But I think it's the same in whatever era you choose. Absolutely. Negotiating when you are making these transitions between roles or you're looking for a promotion, how do you approach that? Uh, it's interesting that you asked that. I've actually, I don't, and, and this may not be a great thing. I don't think I've ever negotiated for more money or, or certain aspects of the role. Uh, wow. Maybe once. And so I think it's... Uh, I'm because just, they came to you and offered you more? No. Well, the next you're, typically your next role tends to have you know a higher financial compensation associated with it. But I also just think I'm just incredibly grateful for the role. And so I don't really... The compensation sort of just, is just a nice... Um, aspect of being where I am at today and but coming from where I grew up uh it just it it's not something that I would ever so I'm probably a bit of an anomaly that I don't necessarily negotiate uh financial terms but I would say I do negotiate uh some personal terms so you know I have three children and so it's important for me maybe to work from home one day a week uh or um you know I need to get home on certain uh, you know certain times at night or, or get my kids on the bus in the morning and so I find I negotiate more in that front Mm -hmm. than I do on the financial front. And how early in your career, because I think that's really important, how early in your career were you defining those things? Yeah, I would say um, pretty fairly early. Uh, So after I had my first child, I realized I didn't want to travel that much while my uh, child was a baby. I decided, hey, look, I'm not going to travel that much. It's I really don't want to travel that much. And so... I started to set those parameters um, for myself pretty early on, and I still, to this day, set some of those parameters. And I think that uh, it could be, like I mentioned, I, I wasn't really willing to leave this area uh, with my children and, and the kind of school age that they are currently. And so it's, you know, I think we all have to set those, what those limits mm-hmm. are. And uh, how early in the conversation does that come up? I, I would imagine you get them in, excited about hiring you. Yes. And then you say, oh, and by the way... I actually feel as though it's it becomes a little bit more natural. Uh, you know, I think I think that uh, I wait till I'm pretty far into the discussions, and I don't make it a big deal. Uh, I think it's if you're you know I'm always available, I'm always working, <laughs> uh, and I think that's in today's world. What you know, we're all commuting, we're all trying to make families and work, uh, you know, make everything work, and so. I ultimately think it's uh, I'm always available and, and, and working, and so I don't make a big big deal out of it. It's sort of uh, I'd li- you know I'd like to be able to do this, and usually I feel as though people get it in today's world. If you could impart one lesson with our listeners, what would it be? Oh wow, one lesson. Uh, I would say that I mentioned it earlier to pay it forward. I feel incredibly privileged and lucky to be where I am today, and so it's how do I then help other people, you know, you know, there's people out there that may have not gone to the best university or may not have the best grades, but come with an incredible set of values and work ethic. And it's how do you help those people succeed? And so 
I think this idea of paying it forward is, is sort of my the biggest thing that I would leave to for that I feel an obligation to do. Um, and then that generation helps the next generation. And so I sort of feel like it, it, you know, it, that's what I view my role to be. You know, coming from Ohio mm-hmm. to New York, I, you know, I came from the Midwest to New York as well. And it can feel like a club when you first get here. People all went to similar colleges, a lot of Ivy League schools, and entry into that club can be difficult hundred percent. Yes, it can be. I think um, it, it's a, it's, you, you are a hundred percent right, especially here in the city. And I think um, that's where I think the, the reading, the listening, the, um, you know, contributing conversations where it makes sense, you can quickly gain credibility in those circles. Uh, and I really, I really don't think much about where I was educated. I think about what am I bringing to the table today? Um, and so I think as long as you come, you know, prepared for discussions and engaged and that, you know, I try to, I try to say like my education was great, but what am I bringing to the table today? And was there a moment in the career where maybe if there was a guard up about any of that initially where that came down? Uh, you know, I definitely had a guard up when I started at GE initially because I, I realized that, um, you know, I had the work ethic question and that's how I got in, but they didn't recruit from University of Dayton. And so uh, I absolutely had a guard up and felt the need to prove myself those those first few years. And then eventually I sort of felt like, hey, I, can, I belong here. Like, I can do this. And, and then I, I realized that uh, it quickly came down. I love it. Jessica, thank you so much for thank joining us. Thank you for us. having me. Thanks for having us to your offices. Absolutely. It was great to have you guys here. Thank you. Okay, it is the end of the interview, which means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you, our incredible listeners, who's building something of your own. And this week's No Limits Entrepreneur is Erin Joy. She's the founder of Black Dress Partners. She was nominated by listener Alex Jesper. Here's Erin to tell you more. Hi, this is Erin Joy, founder and facilitator at Black Dress Circle. By far, the biggest challenge I face in my business is addressing the gap between the big vision I have for myself and my company and the actual budget I have to bring that vision into reality. So I address this by making sure that my team and I spend every dollar uh, as strategically as we possibly can to make our vision reality. And I also use trade agreements where I can to receive services from valuable companies by exchanging my services for their services rather than coming cash out of pocket. The last thing I do is always keep in mind the long game. I'm in this for the long haul. I have at least another 20 years ahead of me in this business and nothing happens overnight. Congrats, Aaron. Wishing you continued success. And Alex, thanks so much for reaching out with the nomination. Remember, you can head on over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to hear more from Aaron and how she created her company. Don't forget, if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as the Entrepreneur of the Week, send me those nominations. Or if you have career questions, you can also send them here to no limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. I am reading them. I'm sorry it's taking me a while to get back to some of you, but I do read everything that comes to that email, and it's a work in progress. We're getting out those responses. 
Finally, a shout out to our team here that helps make this happen every week. My producer, Taylor Dunn, editor, Brittany Martinez, research assistant, Lane Wynn, and the ABC radio team. Elizabeth Russo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelp, and Steve Jones. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.